Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Aggressive bank cultures are in the news with the Royal Commission. How did they get that way and where to now? My name is Dominic Gawley, and I'm joined by Sean McCarthy. Hi, Dominic. And Liana Sangster. Hi, Dom. So what's going on, Sean? How did bank cultures get this way? Yeah, well, I hate to say it, but it's not a simple answer. It's a very complex scenario, and it's a really good opportunity to think about the various factors that impact on culture. So if we look at culture in terms of behavioral norms and expectations, in terms of how people believe they are expected to behave, to fit in and get ahead, so we look at what are the behavioral norms within the banks. And whilst we can see these uh, what appear to be very aggressive sales-oriented cultures, That's merely reflective of a global trend. I mean, I've worked in the banking industry since 1988, I have to say, a very, very long time. And uh, that's not long in systems terms. But if we wind the clock back to, say, late 80s, early 90s, every bank in the world was shifting from a custodial culture to a sales culture. So way back then, banks were very protective, very risk-averse, very careful with your money to the extent that those of you that are old enough listening to this will remember it was actually really hard to get a mortgage back in those days because everything was about uh, the risk management side of things. And globally, there was a whole trend towards making uh, banks more responsive, more customer-oriented, and the phrase that was coined was that of building a sales culture. So taking people who had never worked in a sales environment before and teaching them the concept of sales and building behavioral norms and expectations about you will do this I mean, one of the examples I've always used is when I did training for managers and banking way back then, I used to make comments about the fact that I was unhappy with my current mortgage provider and I was in the market for a new mortgage. And none of these bank managers would come to me and say, I can talk to you about that because they weren't in sales mode. Now, if you stood out there in George Street and said, I want a mortgage, you'd probably get killed in a rush. So that's the change. And that's over a period of 30 years, which for some people is a lifetime, but really in organizational growth terms. It's a drop in the ocean. So what's been driving that change? Again, a number of complex variables. One is expectational change from the world. In other words, basically the marketplace got sick of finding banks so difficult to deal with that there was pressure for them to change their cultures and become more sales-oriented. Impending technology, they could see it coming. I mean, now, gosh, I read a figure the other day that was something like 90-something percent of uh, transactions, of particular type of transactions in banking in Australia was done through electronic medium. And again, in the old days, you walked into a branch, you queued for hours, and you got your service done over the counter. Hands up those who last went into a bank branch. I mean, you just don't do it anymore. So they knew the technology was coming. They knew the different payment systems were coming. They knew aggregation systems were coming. And so it's probably one of the very early case studies of electronic disruption of industry. So they knew they had to change. They knew they had to become very responsive. And like in a lot of cases, these banks were advised by, I have to say, people that didn't understand culture. So I'm very familiar with one American organization who was the global leader in sales training in the banking industry. And uh, basically what they did was used aggressive techniques from a sales point of view. So, of course, if the bank's being taught how to sell, put it simplistically, by organizations that don't understand culture and the impact that sort of stuff has on culture, then of course they're going to adopt those principles, techniques and approaches and then ultimately see the cost on the culture and that's what's happening now. I think it's just an interesting point to pick up on that because people talk about a sales culture and 
Yeah. And typically we go to an aggressive mindset when we talk yeah. about that, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can do sales from constructive as well. Yeah. Well, in fact, a very good example of that is in the early 90s, a particular retail bank who wanted to do that sales culture development work looked at the global providers in that industry and felt, and this was a very constructive organization, and felt that they were overly aggressive in their approaches and they didn't want to do that. So they actually developed their own training internally with some help from a few consultants who understood culture about how to do that. And, and they, they actually went from being number four in the market to number one in the market. So I guess you could say it worked, but none of these aggressive sales practices and techniques. So you've got to be careful who you're advised by, I say. Mm. Does your consultant actually understand the impact on culture of some of these processes and systems that they're putting in place? But yes, Dominic, this whole sort of culture four thing is very popular at the moment. It seems that you've got to have a risk culture, a safety culture, a customer-oriented culture, an innovation culture, and all these cultures. And of course, everybody who's a specialist in one particular part of that is saying you've got to have an innovation culture or you've got to have a safety culture, et cetera. And so that in itself is very confusing. And I have to say, if it doesn't sound too arrogant, that most of the people who are talking about that, in my view, don't really understand organizational culture. And so that's actually a big big thing is, you know, all these, uh, you need a culture for this, you need a culture for yeah. that. And and I think it's easy to get sucked into that. But the trouble comes when people are like, well, we need a sales culture and we need a yeah. innovation yeah. culture yeah. and a this culture. And okay, well, what am I supposed to do? It becomes quite complicated quite quickly. What I would say on the banks is, just as a story for myself, you know, I guess this move to the more sales orientated culture hasn't been all bad. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so, you know, I lived overseas for a while in, in China and Denmark. And in I remember in Denmark, my wallet got stolen. Actually, I lost my cards and I had to cancel it. It took me, I think it was three weeks to get a new card and all back online. It was a nightmare. I had to get cash out with my passport and so on in Denmark. I called up the phone back in New Zealand, it was, uh, called the bank up on the phone back in New Zealand and was greeted with this friendly hello and they sorted me out on the phone and it was so easy and I got a little homesick in that moment of, <laughs> wow, it's so easy. And even moving to Australia, I remember I set up my bank accounts online, it was all set up, card was ready for me to pick up when I landed on the ground, basically, mm. and that just doesn't exist um, everywhere. So it's not all bad, right? I think yeah. that's the thing to keep in mind. Well, well, in, in that tone, I think we should actually be congratulating the banks in Australia and New Zealand for that matter on what they achieved through the GFC. So the regulatory authorities and the banks combined, so the banks and the regulations under which the banks were functioning, actually saved Australia from the GFC. I mean, Australia itself did not have a financial crisis that had the impact of a global financial crisis on this country. And that says something very, very complimentary about the banks here. Unlike the banks in the United States with multiple bankruptcies, and you've all heard and read about that, there were no bank bankruptcies here in Australia. They all survived. So they're doing some things really well. Uh, just this happens to be a very high-profile failure. Do you think it's indicative, Liana, of a kind of wider trend around? There's a big push and belief, I think, of people that businesses are here to return shareholder value. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of the the common mantra: shareholder value. You know, and part of it, I wonder, who gets out of bed in the morning excited to increase shareholder value? But you know, is, is some of that? That's a widely held belief. Is that driving some of these kinds of cultures? So when I think, I guess, of a crude analogy of what drives aggressive defensive cultures, the thing that comes to mind is short-term wins or perhaps narrowly focused financial 
outcomes or focuses. So yeah. when I observe some of those typically aggressive styles of behaviors in the marketplace, there is typically beneath that a business that is encouraging people reach incredibly high targets in very short spaces of time. And then that filters through the business. So you get your CEOs on a, on a three-year cycle wanting to demonstrate that they've grown the business by X dollars. And then what that in turn does is narrows everyone's focus on financial return, not thinking about how we get there, what are those unintended consequences that come along with that. And they kind of create that tunnel vision, if you like, for individuals where particularly if you've got individual targets and you've got stories in a business of people who don't meet them and you know you get the boot or whatever it is, it becomes very important to look good through achieving particular outcomes and not be seen as, you know, failing, I guess, in that business. Uh-huh. So what that can create is is a- aggressive cultures, I guess. But your question around does it motivate people? Is that what inspires people? I think there are plenty of people that are motivated by that. I don't know if it ripples through the entire organization to keep everyone enthusiastic. And I think if I could make an observation of some businesses these days, it would be that to remember why we exist in the first place around what is it that we're trying to do for for the community in which we're operating. So it's one thing to be financially sustainable, but remembering that we're servicing people and we're providing employment for people and we have a brand around what we're trying to achieve for our customer needs to be considered in, in how we go about achieving those results. So Sean, if, if I'm a shareholder, Maybe I don't care about what the purpose is, right? I want yeah. I want money yeah, in my exactly. bank account. That's yeah. all I care about. I mean, I can't help but say this, but shareholder value is one of the greatest myths that exists in business today. It really is a complete and utter nonsense. So we look look at this. I mean, I can't. I'm trying desperately to drag, drag her name out of my memory, but this woman wrote a book. It would be about ten years ago on shareholder value, and she wrote a whole chapter about. Uh, Working in a public corporation is the modern version of medieval serfdom, where basically the large majority are working for five-eighths of bugger all to make the minority rich. And that's really how the share market works. And so this, I say shareholder value is a myth because we talk about building capital value for our owners, having our owners willing to invest in our business, etc. Now, you say that, you really should be looking at, so how much capital in our organisation is new investment that's been provided by our shareholders? Because you've got to remember, when I buy a share in, say, Combank, I'm buying a second-hand share. Combank don't oh. see any of that money. Oh. You see the money because I bought it off you. And then when I sell it to somebody else, I see the money. Combank has nothing to do with that, apart from the regulatory and fiduciary processes throughout the transactions. So keep in mind that buying and selling shares is buying and selling on a second-hand market. And the organization itself does not see any of that capital. So coming to Dominic's question, and I do invest in the share market, as do you. If you don't directly, you do it through your superannuation plan. And so are you interested in where the organization is going to be in five years' time or what their performance is in 10 years' time? No, you're not. You're interested in what their performance is right now because you have a stock market index and your wealth advisor's aim is to achieve beyond that index, the definition of a good investment. And so therefore, they're looking for very quick returns so that they can sell that share, invest the profit, the gain in another share to sell that quickly to make money. And that's how you build your wealth as an investor. You start off with $1, you sell it for $1.20, you invest $1.20, you sell it for $1.80. And within a very short period of time, your $1 has become hopefully 3 or 4 or $5. And every now and again, it goes into minus territory. And that's another story. So this really does 
dry, what Liana referred to and talked about, and it's called short-termism, that we, the whole expectational system within which an organization is functioning has these expectations that you will create short-term performance because at the end of the day, that's actually all I'm interested in. I'll make all sorts of nice words about culture and long-term development and innovation and growth, but actually... It's what I get back this year through my broker that matters. So can I ask a question then? Sorry, Dom, just <laughs> launching here. <laughs> what is the incentive then for leaders to shift that focus? That's such a damn good question. It really is because they're not measured on it, so there's no incentive to do it. So it's really chief executives, organisation, senior people who take a longer-term view. I mean, one of our uh, consultants was uh, attending a meeting of an executive group of a Chinese company somewhere in China. I can't remember where. It doesn't really matter. And he was absolutely gobsmacked because the topic for discussion was the 100-year plan. And uh, I don't think there's too many organizations in Australia that do 100-year plans. In fact, they do five-year plans, talking about it a five-year plan, but it's not actually a five-year plan. It's a one-year plan followed by another year plan followed by another year plan and so on. So why should they focus on culture? That is such a good question because the answer can only be if they are interested in the long-term development and effectiveness of that organization. And this requires a distinction between effectiveness and success because success is in the short term, effectiveness, however, is in the long term. So this is not helped by the fact that the average tenure of a CEO in Australia, I think from memory, is something like 4.2 years. So if you talk to a CEO who's been there for three years, they're really only interested in what's going to happen in the next one year and four months. So it, partly what I'm hearing there is it's a it's got to be in a personal belief as well. Yeah. 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 And an understanding that where you are at the moment, you could be doing a whole lot better. So there are alternate ways of doing better. And the alternate ways may be in the organization's culture. So it requires a lot of courage. I mean, no change goes without risk. And even Machiavelli talked about the first person to suffer for the consequence of trying to make change as the change agent. And so any CEO who steps up to the plate and says, I want to develop a business that's sustainable over a 10 to 20 year platform, but I'm only going to be here perhaps for four or five of those is taking a very brave step. Some people would say that sounds a bit kind of rainbows and sunshine. Yep. You know, like instead of focusing on the money, let's focus on these other things. But do I get what you're saying around sustainability, that actually is a measure of profitability. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to pick you up on one thing, and I hate to do this to you, Dominic, but you said instead of focusing on the money, mm. focus on both. So I just want to make that very, very important. It's not about not making a profit. Of course, if you're a public corporation, you're obliged to make a return to your shareholders. And that's interesting. I mean, we have had some evidence over the years that privately owned corporations, uh, it's easier to develop a constructive culture and they're more likely to have a, pub, a constructive culture than their counterparts who are publicly owned because they haven't got those pressures and, and privately owned companies tend to think of the long term, whereas publicly owned companies are about this this year's dividend, this year's uh, share market growth. So it's it's not about either or, it's both, and, and I don't want to sort of sound overly pedantic at that, but it's really around we are focusing on making a profit, growing revenue, et cetera, et cetera, but at the same time, are we doing that in a way that says this organization will still be successful in 10 to 20 years' time, long after I've gone? So we talk as much as we can about the legacy that a CEO and a senior executive team leaves in an organization. So what do you want What do you want people in 10 years' time to be saying about your leadership 10 years ago? And that's always an interesting conversation to have. So it's almost, on a previous podcast, we talked about Lion's model of 
appraisals and yeah. that it was results times behavior. Yeah. So if you got stellar results but through terrible means, then you got a zero because it was yeah. a multiplication, yeah. not addition. And it's almost the organizational equivalent of that same yeah. model. Yeah. Well, I mean, a good example, I mean, this legacy, people at Lyon still talk very fondly about Gordon Keynes as when he was a CEO, but Gordon has been CEO for Lyon now for at least 10 years, if, if not even longer. And of course, now gone on to being on a number of boards, including Woolworths. And so if we're in the situation now with, with the banks, if, if you're in a bank, where to from here? Because there's a lot of suggestions floating around in the media. What do you think is actually going to get traction and get them moving in the right direction? Yeah, well, two things. One is uh, for the banks themselves. And secondly, is a fear about an outcome of these Royal Commissions. So I'll deal with the first one because it's top of my mind. The second one because it's top of my mind at the moment. The regulatory authorities are talking about risk cultures, etc., as they should, and that's all good and well. But what they seem to be talking about is procedures and protocols for risk management, which is actually not about culture, which is why I said earlier, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I think a lot of these authorities don't actually understand what culture is. Culture is not about procedures and regulations. Culture is about behavioral norms and the expectations for how people should behave. So we'll put in place all these regulations and everybody will be able to tick the box and say, yes, I have complied. Yes, I have a risk culture and we move on and it'll all become part of the history book. So what do the banks need to do? The banks need to really question what thinking and beliefs lead them to do what they have been doing. Now, some of them have just gotten overly enthusiastic about a sales process or a sales approach. On the other hand, some have uh, acted quite seriously inadequately in terms of charging their customers for services not provided. So that's a different story altogether. But in both cases, I think it would be a good opportunity for the executives to sit back and reflect on what was the underlying beliefs and and thinking that caused them to go to that. And it's not necessarily simply certain people falling on their sword because these are systems issues. They're not simply the chief executive's problem. And so by all means, people can fall on their swords to their heart's content, but the system needs to be examined. So they need to reflect, they need to think, they probably need to measure, they need to get some feedback somehow on what's causing that stuff to happen. And then look at, these have been the unintended consequences of what we've done in the past. We haven't done it on purpose. It's just happened. We didn't understand it was going to cause this. So if we don't want these things to happen again in the future, what do we need to put in place to ensure that? And so it's interesting. I think it's really tempting in these situations to kind of swing from one extreme to yeah. the other. So yeah. if we've got these, you know, aggressive cultures that have been described in the banks, they come in and hit them over the head with a whole lot of regulations and procedures and processes. And now you swing back the other way to yeah. now we're passive. So yeah. now we're unplugging our brain. We're trying to keep out of trouble. And that's also not a good situation to be in either. So you've got to be really careful that people feel it's like there's only two extremes. It's either all out aggressive or yeah. kind of all out controlled and passive. There's actually a third way. Yeah, there is. And, and pendulums do tend to swing. And I've seen that several times in my life where they go from one end to the other and eventually the pendulum finds its balance. It's just a question of when that eventually is. But interestingly, I mean, again, some of these regulatory processes put in place in order to try and govern the way the banks behave. I mean, if, uh, if, if as a listener, if you're a financial review reader, I suggest you Keep track of the Alex cartoon that's there every day. So one of the regulatory processes that have been put in place in UK banking is that where two partners work for separate banking or financial organisations, they are not allowed to talk to each other about their work. 
And so the, the absolutely brilliant cartoon of Alex, or Alex is the main character, has a situation where a husband and wife, or two male-female partners at least anyway, bankers for separate banks, and every time they go out to dinner, they have to take somebody from the risk department with them to make sure they don't talk about work. So what he's doing is going the far side, you know, like this is the extreme ridiculousness mm. of legislating that a husband and wife or two partners or two whatevers, doesn't matter, can't talk to each other about work. I mean, that is absolutely nonsense. And it's so common and so often. And yeah. and I, I wonder, like, in the banks, I know they're talking about bringing in people to kind of monitor and sit there and so on. Yeah. It's like, what? I wonder what effect is that going to have on people? Yeah. What are the unintended consequences? What are the Always unintended the consequences? Yeah. Well, again, one of the interesting things with this writer and this Alex cartoons is in the good old days, the uh, rock stars and banking were the traders. Uh, oh. They were the people that made all the money. They were the most important people in the bank. And he's written several strips, or I think it's a he that writes them, several strips around the fact that actually it's the risk management people that are now the rock stars and the highest paid people mm. in the bank and the most important people in the bank. And again, it's just that person's way of uh, taking the piss out of what's happening in that industry. What else should the banks be looking at? Well, this, it comes down to bank by bank. I mean, one of the things they're doing, and this is a typical organizational response to demand for change, is structural change. So the banks are all selling off their wealth management divisions, so they're moving away from the advisory function, and I would suggest probably going back into a bit more of the custodial function. And that will sort of drive some change, but it doesn't drive the underlying change. And again, that's why you do see organizations undertake structural change. And 10, 15 years later, they're right back to where they started from because changing the structure does not change the behavior. But they do. They need to reflect. They need to think about what those underlying behaviors, what those underlying beliefs and underlying values have been that have driven them to that point. They obviously need to do some around the edges, very simple stuff. And they're talking about this, getting rid of these bonus incentives or if they don't get rid of them, at least measure them in such a way that they know that I'm giving them to dead people as opposed to uh, well, selling things to dead people as opposed to real-life customers. And that's all simple to do. And, of course, as far as some of the money laundering and so-called stuff that's happening in the marketplace, I think this is a natural unintended consequence of electronic banking. It's very easy to cheat financially with electronic systems, and the banks are only beginning to learn how to deal with that. Uh. So I guess that's that's the other thing is not wrapping everything up in this whole, yeah. it's the culture, it's the culture. Maybe it's some other stuff going yeah, on. Look, and it's all too easy, and I have to say it's becoming very much on trend at the moment, is everything is the fault of the culture. Uh, and whilst culture is everything, it's not necessarily everything, right? So culture influences everything that we do, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say that everything that we do is a consequence of the culture. And the banking industry has gone through enormous change over the last 20 years and will go through significant change over the next 20 years. And you see that most obviously with the likes of uh, NAB announcing uh, large numbers of redundancies because people just don't go into bank branches anymore. It's all done electronically. So gone are the days when the banks are very, very large employers of people. They will be very large employers of machines and robots. That's right. I think that's a fantastic point to end on. If I can do some takeaways from this conversation, I think it was interesting that the banks have kind of moved over the last 20, 30 years from being custodians to being sales. And that's driven then a bit of a shift in culture. You know, it used to be very hard to, to get a loan now, and everyone's uh, giving them out. But I think an interesting point in there was that a sales culture doesn't need to be aggressive. You can sell from constructive. Absolutely. And so there's kind of a misattribution, I guess, of um, very much so of what goes on there. But the shareholder value is a bit of a myth. It's it's a resale market. It's a secondhand market. 
And so it's really getting a CEO or someone to take a longer term view rather than the 4.2 years that that they're in the seat for um, and thinking about, okay, why are we here? And it's to do both profit and to build a lasting legacy and a lasting organization that can be sustained over the long term rather than the short termism. As far as where to go from here, you know, we talked about how the banks have been hit over the head a bit with procedures and protocols and how that might actually swing the pendulum too far the other way. So they need to be aware of not going overboard on that route and really investigating what are the underlying beliefs and thinking that got them to where they are currently. So what was actually driving those bonuses? What was driving those sales? What was the belief underneath it all? And ultimately to, you know, look at what they can do differently going forward without sort of overdoing it. I guess that's the real challenge. It's going to be interesting to see it play out. Thanks for your time today, guys. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.